Welcome back to Finding the Edge podcast. I'm Garrett Boyum, joined with Robert Fry. Today, we have on a previous guest in that of Rob Gray, who's recently published a study that took data from another study that he did in the past um, regarding freeing and freezing degrees of freedom in a batted ball swing. And we explored that study and asked some questions about how to improve with within that study and how to better get the most out of our players. Yeah. And so one of the cool things that Rob looked at um, that he didn't have in a previous study was the force plate data that he had collected in one of his virtual batting studies, um, previous ones. And so we just kind of discussed his paper today and, and a little bit of the past history behind it, as well as looking at the, degrees of freedom problem, good and bad variability, and how can coaches apply these findings to their practices and to helping develop their players. Additionally, um, hopefully you guys have seen or maybe know, but um, Robert is is going to be um, a GA for Quincy University, um, located in Illinois. Um, yeah, super pumped um, for for Robert and his new position down in Quincy, being being an analyst for them and helping set up their their analytics um, side of their program. Um, so I hope you guys really enjoy our conversation today with Rob Gray. Rob, thanks for coming back on again. Um, I guess for today, the the reason to have you on again is to talk about your new paper um, and to, to, since it touches a little bit on what you spoke on at the uh, Sport Movement Skill Conference uh, this past year. And so um, I thought it'd be good to kind of reflect a little bit on that and then also talk about your new paper. Okay, great. Yeah, it's, thanks for having me back. <laughs> um, I'm more than happy to. So I guess to start off, um, do you kind of want to explain the um, setup for the paper and yeah. what the paper was about? Um, you know, it's, for, for the listeners, um, it was on baseball batting. So I'll kind of let you take it away from there. Yeah, so this was actually, it's kind of a two-part thing. So... Um, back in 2017, I published a paper that was a, a baseball training study um, that actually it took me 10 years to do. <laughs> I'll explain why in a second. Um, so it was a, a kind of a labor of love. But in that study, what I did was I uh, trained uh, baseball batters. It, this, they were high school baseball players. And I had uh, four different training groups. And there was a group, there was a control group that just did regular baseball practice. There was a group that we took into a, a batting cage and we gave them extra batting practice um, uh, weekly in the batting cage uh, against a pitching machine. And what we did for that was kind of use the traditional way that you use a pitching machine. The settings were kind of always the same every session in, in a, a block of a session. So the speed wasn't changing much in the location, wasn't changing. So there was low variability. Then the other two groups were in uh, the virtual environment, the baseball batting V2 
VR simulator that I've used in a lot of my research. And one of the groups we did uh, batting practice, uh, more batting practice in the simulation. So in the virtual environment, again, with kind of this low variability. Um, so hitting off the same kind of setting on a pitching machine. And so we did that. And then the final group was the group that I, I was, you know, hypothesized would do the best that we took a group of these high school players and we trained them in the virtual environment. And we took advantage of the virtual environment that you can vary things more e easily. So they had much higher variability in the pitch type, the pitch location and the pitch speed during training. And what we did was to vary it kind of adaptively. So based on their, their, their performance. So um, if they really were, you know, hitting the pitch as well, you know, um, at a certain speed, we upped the speed a bit, right. And, and, and kind of adjusted it based on the performance. And then we adjusted the range, the range of locations and stuff. So the bottom line is they had much more variability in the practice conditions than the other groups. And what we found was that after this training, I think it was six weeks long, the, uh, this group that I'll call the V virtual environment adaptive group, uh, did the best on hits in the hits in the hitting in the virtual environment, hitting off a pitching machine, pitch recognition tests. Um, and then we went on to do a couple of things. We looked at their batting statistics, uh, specifically their on base percentage in their next full season. And this group did the best out of all the groups, this V adaptive. And then the reason that that took so long, <laughs> the study took so long is what we did was we followed them for the next five years after the study was over. And we looked at what level of baseball they reached. So did they go to call play in college? Did they get drafted? Um, what level of the minors? And we basically found that this adaptive group did uh, better, uh, reached higher levels of play than the other groups we compared to. So, so we had pretty convincing training results uh, of this and um, you know, and I, the main conclusion, as you probably from the description, is that I thought I think the variability in practice conditions really helped the batters. But so that was published in 2017. And in that study, I collected actually um, we had two force plates on the ground. Um, and what we did is I measured force, uh, you know, the ground reaction forces. Um, I collected that data during the training study, but I didn't include it in the original paper because it would have been 50 pages long or something. So I went back and analyzed it to basically try to understand why, what was different about that group? Why did they do better in, in the training? So um, in particular, I was looking at how they were coordinating kind of the timing of the different parts of the swing. So the the force plates allowed us to detect, you know, when you're front foot is leading the ground when you're shifting your weight back when you're shifting it forward and then we had motion tracking we can track when the bat is started so basically I, I was trying to look at um, how the training affected kind of the timing of the swing and the coordination and and going back to relating it to the you mentioned the the, the conference um, how you coordinate kind of the different degrees of freedom in the swing that was kind of the goal of the paper so and that was the goal of the current paper correct mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And, and so do you want to kind of explain a little bit, uh, for those who don't know, um, the degrees of freedom problem, because is that what you were looking at? Or at least when it comes to coordination, why we want to think about, or why it's important to maybe consider the degrees of freedom problem? Yeah. So I was, this is, um, yeah, that, that was kind of the context I put it in. And then if you read the paper, the kind of introduction is a lot about, uh, degrees of freedom problem. And it's a bit of a different take on it, but 
Um, yeah, the, the idea is that, you know, when, you, when you're learning to perform an action, you have all these different options of how to move. You know, um, you could, you know, do uh, the example I gave at the conference was, you know, if you're, if you're serving a volleyball, um, you could serve it by just rotating your arm around your shoulder, doing that plus rotating around your elbow plus that plus rotating around your wrist. So you have all these different options and the degrees of freedom problem is, you know, Bernstein defined it as, you know, it's this problem of choice, right? You have too many things, possibilities. So um, how do you, how do you decide what to do? How do you choose the movement solution? And his hypothesis was that we initially kind of restrict our movements, what he calls freezing degrees of freedom, and then we free them. We kind of uh, bring back more options and more degrees of freedom in so we can get more of an advanced sol solution. Um, so I wanted, I kind of, the typical way that we look at de freezing degrees of freedom and degrees of freedom problem is by looking at joint angles and seeing how much they vary and how they relate to each other. So I, this is kind of a little bit of a different take on it because it's mostly focusing on the timing of the movements. And, but again, I was kind of looking at the same thing, you know, how do you know when to, you know, shift your weight back to go to your front foot, to start the swing, you know, you, all those are kind of possibilities for, for moving that a batter has and how do they kind of coordinate all that? Um, and how does the training affect uh, that problem? So kind of with that, how does variability play into that? Cause that was another big part of your paper. And then I remember um, you've done some podcast episodes as well on variability and this idea of good and bad variability. So how does that kind of play in with the degree, the degrees of freedom problem? Yeah. So the idea is that I think, you know, what people hypothesize is, you know, to, so that solving the degrees of freedom problem involves kind of finding a solution that's going to work um, and being able to adapt that solution to different conditions. And so the kind of hypothesis that we have is that, by giving more variability in practice, it's going to give you more of a chance to kind of develop a more adaptable solution, a solution that's better for you, um, rather than just using really restrictive conditions. You're not going to get a chance essentially to try different things, right, and and react to different conditions. So that's the basic idea. And yeah, and that's kind of one of the analysis I did in, in this new paper was um, to try to break apart. So good variability is, is so bad variability is, Variability that takes you away from your goal, right? So um, if I, you know, delay the, my leg kick in hitting um, too long, then it's going to make me too late to, to get to the ball. And so that's bad variability. I can't achieve my goal. Um, good variability, it really should be called potentially good because it's variability that um, allows you to adjust more to the, to the condition. So in hitting, for example... If I just look at, you know, uh, shifting my weight back and shifting my weight forward, um, I can use any combination of those that I want as long as they add up to get me to the right time to hit the ball. So uh, the variability within that is is potentially good because it allows me to adjust to the conditions. But if I vary those things so they add up to getting me there too early or too late, that's bad variability. It's, it's not going to achieve my goal. That's the idea. So then... Is there a way to quantify that? Um, I'm assuming so because you did that in your paper, but how would one go about quantifying that and trying to analyze that? 
Yeah. So there's a couple of ways. So there's a way to do it um, uh, called uncontrolled manifold analysis, which is a very, very formal way. And you really need a full kind of motion tracking and being able to measure joint angles and things uh, to be able to do that. And and that's not what I did. I I used that term in my paper, but it was really kind of just inspired by um, the, the, that kind of approach. Cause I didn't do that proper analysis. Um, what I did is, is, uh, I think you can do this kind of good. If you can identify a kind of a constraint that uh, y- y- you need to satisfy to, to be successful in an action and then kind of break apart the movement within that. So that's what I did. So I, I, I did it almost exactly the way I just described. I divided the swing into, into the kind of the shift back onto your back foot. So when you lift, when a batter lifts their front foot off the ground, they're shifting their weight backward to kind of coil uh, to generate power. And then the movement forward as you step back on the ground and, and begin to move the bat. So I separated the, so any, you can do in a kind of a good, good and bad variability analysis. If you can break the movement apart in, into the, these kind of parts and look at how, kind of how they add up. So that's kind of what I did. I looked at, combinations of the two weight shifts and, and whether they satisfy this constraint or not. You know, the constraint in this case is the, the time of arrival of the ball. So based on the pitch speed and, and things like that. So, um, so that's kind of, so variability that keeps you satisfying this constraint is good variability. Variability that moves you away from the constraint um, is bad variability. So if we're talking about hitting, what are some of the constraints? One of them that you described was the the time constraint or the temporal constraint. What would be uh, another um, another or other uh, constraints that would be placed upon a hitter that they would need to satisfy in order to have a successful um, batting outcome? Yeah, I guess it it gets the timing is the the really the easiest one. That's why I picked it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the, obviously the spatial constraint of where you contact the ball. Um, you know, and and now we can get that gets many more challenging because obviously you can hit the ball in different contact points. Um, you know, we could define a spatial constraint in terms of attack angle. You know, if we wanted to talk about uh, trying to get the ball in the air, um, mm-hmm. you could you could look at it that way. Um, there's also a constraint in terms of kind of how you move is constrained. If you want to really push a powerful swing, right? You need, you're kind of, what the batter's doing is doing a kinetic link, a chain, right? You're taking the forces from the ground and moving them up their lower body all the way to the bat eventually. So there is a constraint there of, of keeping that, um, that, that link, link intact, uh, that if you break that, you you might hit the ball, but it's going to be a very weak swing. So, so yeah, you can, you can break these, these, these different constraints, um, that way. Um, but as I said, those ones are a little more complicated to define <laughs> simply like, like the timing one. Go ahead, Robert. So then in that case, the, in terms of, you know, having a different constraint would that then in turn uh adjust the difference between good variability and bad variability so if we were talking about like you said earlier attack angle would that kind of variability uh differ compared to uh timing um i don't know that's a good question i think yeah the the what what would comp what would account what would uh, com- you know, um, good variability would mean and, and bad variability would mean would be a dip- bit different, I think, um, if you define it in terms of t- attack angle. Um, 
the basic idea is, you know, that good variability is going to allow you to. So if we if we just talk about the the time and the weight shift. So good variability, if I happen to be a little, you know, say I'm, I'm you know, I anticipate the pitch is going to be a, cur- a curveball or I anticipate it's going to be a fastball and I do my, my, my weight shift way too early, right? It turns out it's a, it's a off-speed pitch. Um, good batters can compensate the rest of their movement to adjust for the fact that they're, they're out too early, right? And that's what we mean by really good variability. So the variability is, is the swing is different this time than it was last time. Um, but it's for a reason. It's because the batter's adjusting it um, to, to either, you know, they're, they're, they're out early or the, the difference in pitch or so it allows you for, to adjust for kind of variations both in the environment and in your own kind of internal uh, constraints, you know, so, um, but yeah, I think the, the diff, the relationship would depend on kind of what you, how you defined it and, and what good variability meant and bad variability. Launch angle is an interesting one, right? Because there's this narrow range where, where it's optimal and then it, it kind of changed. So I think you'd have to define it in terms of the outcomes. It would be, that would be uh, how you'd want to look at it. So when it comes to, um, like these other, um, constraints but even with the time constraint isn't there a range with all of these so even if like okay the ball arrives within the hitting zone at this time uh point but they can hit it from you know i don't know maybe five milliseconds or 10 milliseconds after it arrives in the hitting zone it is actually hittable so basically they have like their margin of error is within that or maybe it's even five five before it gets to the hitting zone depending upon how much coverage their swing has is is that does that make it more complicated i mean it makes it more complicated but does that is it still possible to um work that into the calculation yeah it definitely is and so i I actually did that exact thing um so i think i used um, based on some of the calculate, I think it was plus or minus eight milliseconds. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, one of the figures in the paper, if, if, if people go look at, you'll see, um, what, what there's, so it, what I did was kind of define a margin for error around, uh, this kind mm-hmm. of, kind of the, based on that. So as long, I, I define good variabilities, variations in the swing timing that kept you within that margin for error. Um, and then bad variability was ones that pushed you outside. And so um, do you kind of want to explain a little bit more on the uncontrolled manifold? Uh, one, because that kind of also inspired the logo for <laughs> for this podcast. And so, um, you know, in one of your podcasts, as you were talking about, um, basically like the swing is just, it needs to satisfy, for example, the, the temporal constraint um, and all the parts just need to add up to when the ball arrives at the hitting zone. Um, for me, that was really, really enlightening um, and like really helpful to, to envision hitting more in that way. Um, and so, yeah, if you could just kind of explain a little bit more about like what is the uncontrolled manifold analysis and how could that be applied to a sport like baseball? Yeah, so the... You, the what you do in an uncontrolled is basically you plot um, the two components of the movement against each other, and so you you can imagine them on the, on a graph. And so if I if I plotted the the shift 
to the back foot and the shift forward. Um, and then I can look at the combination of those, right? So, um, you know, in, in, um, so in hitting the temporal constraint is going to be, I need those two things to add up together to equal the time it takes the ball to get there, um, mm -hmm. within that margin for error, plus or minus that margin for error you mentioned. So, um, if you draw that figure, you have all these combinations. So imagine that, you know, the, the ball is going to arrive in, in 500 milliseconds, which would be really slow baseball, but, um, and my weight shift to the back took 250 and my weight shift forward took 250 uh, milliseconds. Obviously th that combination satisfies that constraint. Um, but I could e equally do, you know, a quicker weight, longer weight shift back of 300 and then the weight shift forward a bit faster, 200, that still satisfies it. So you get this line uh, in, in this kind of space of, of these variables, that's the manifold, right? Um, and any movement along that line um, is, is we, you, we called it um, variability within the manifold. So, so all these combinations of, you know, 200, 300, 100, 400, that would be weird, but, uh, you know, are, as long as they meet this constraint, that's variability within the manifold. Um, and then you have variability going away from the manifold. So if, if I had a combination of the swing back weight, backward weight shift taking 300 milliseconds and the forward weight shift taking 300 milliseconds, obviously that doesn't add up to meet the constraint. It's too late. Right. So that's going to be out. That's a, uh, what in uncontrolled manifold analysis, you call that orthogonal variability because <laughs> it's moving away from the manifold. Um, but that's the, that's the basic idea. So in the, within the manifold, as I said, uh, the, the, the better term is potentially good variability because it's not good. It, it, it's good because it potentially allows you to adjust be adjustable and adaptable, right? Um, as I said, so if you get out too early because you, you predicting the wrong pitch, it allows you to compensate um, the, the swing. So it's potentially good. The bad variability is definitely bad because you can't achieve your goal, but uh, that's the basic analysis. The actual, uh, as I said, the actual real uncontrolled manifold analysis is much more complicated mathematically, but um, it basically gives you a number of, of, so, what, but what I basically found in, in my study is before training, there was kind of an equal amount of good, bad, and bad variability within the swing. So people, um, they're in both ways. So the people didn't use the same timing every swing, which is kind of important. And then there was kind of variations in both directions. Whereas after training, almost all the variability was within the manifold. So there's two points there. One is people aren't doing a perfectly repeatable swing. They're still varying. They're just using more functional, adaptable, good variability uh, after the training. And so just to kind of clarify for people, the manifold is the line and people could maybe think of it similar to like a regression line. And then as for good variability falls close to that line, or if we're, if we're talking about what you had described about having a margin for error, they're actually, um, it creates kind of a area above and below the line. And so, um, basically would it, would it be appropriate to say that the, those, uh, combinations of, uh, weight shift forward and back are, are movement solutions. So those data points are, um, 
yeah, movement solutions essentially. Is that yeah, fair to I, say? Exactly. Those so those are two degrees of freedom within the movement, right? I can vary my timing of those two things. And yeah, what I what what I come up with, what emerges is is definitely I would call that a movement solution the batter's using. Um yeah, and I think I, I, I describe it as a line, but you're right, it's more like a volume in space, but uh the line's kind of it. Uh, easier way to the way I think of it. But uh, yes, that's definitely right. And then, so as we move further away from the line, the, um, and we get outside that area, then that becomes bad variability. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. It's so things. Yeah. It, it's, um, you're not going to be successful in your goal anymore. Um, if you use those, so those are still movement solutions, right? Um, 300 milliseconds plus mm -hmm. 300 is still a movement solution. It's just not going to be an effective one. Um, so I need to do something different. Gotcha. Right. Um, and then so when it comes to um, you, you mentioned that not everybody had the same timing mm -hmm. um, in terms of when they weighted their front foot. Now, I guess the question is, is did they all uh, put their foot down at a similar time? but their weighting was different or did uh, both of those variables vary um, have like a high standard deviation? Um, yeah. All, everything kind of had a standard, a fairly high standard deviation within both within and between people. So they're it, different batters, different, uh, different how they do it. Um, and within the batter, uh, the, the variability in, in the timing um, kind of got, um, got, uh, was was fairly high uh, as well, so they definitely weren't doing the same uh, kind of. And they, no matter how you measured it, measure whether you measure it relative to the release point or or something else, it was it was fairly high variability. Um, what what I did found one of the kind of the first um, main findings um, is that if you you measure kind of the variability of the different parts of the swing, it goes down and down and down as you go out. So. Right. And it makes sense. So when I time my leg kick doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what, how variable that is. Right. It does matter when my bat reaches the zone. Right. Mm -hmm. That, that can't vary all that much. Right. Or I'm not going to meet that constraint. So what I found was the, the landing of the front foot was, was fair, was, had a certain date standard deviation. The, the weight shift was, had a standard deviation is a bit lower the mm. start of the actual bat movement, the, the variability in that was a bit lower. And then the actual swing getting into the zone was lower. So the variability in the movement was successfully going down throughout the movement, which is which that that's important because it, it's evidence that the batter is controlling the swing online, right? During the, they're not just closing their eyes and swinging, <laughs> right? Uh, the same swing there. You cannot have the variability go down and down and down unless you're, changing something during the swing, uh, kind of functionally. So, so that was a pretty, mm -hmm. that was a pretty important finding. Yeah. So to, to kind of clarify that when you, when you're talking about, um, the variability going down and down, essentially as they begin to sequence their movement, um, the start of their sequence is going to have more variability and as they get further along their sequence in their swing, the variability decreases. Exactly. So yeah, another way to maybe is consistency. So they're not very consistent in when the time the, the front foot, you know, hitting the ground, 
they are super consistent in when the bat gets into the <laughs> into the zone, right? Um, from swing mm-hmm. to swing, yeah. And then I'm trying to remember, there was a second part that you had laid out at the end of um, that. So you talked about how that um, about sequence. The- the online control. Um, oh yes, yeah. exactly. And so then with, with online control, do you want to kind of unpack that a little bit um, for people in terms of what you mean by that term? Yeah. So there's kind of the, we can distinguish two, two distinct ways uh, of control kind of offline pre-program control. So is, so I could, okay. I could, as a hitter, I could say, okay, that's a fastball. I'm going to generate a swing with a certain, uh, you know, direction and timing and speed that's appropriate for a fastball. And once I start moving, I'm not going to do anything else. This, this pre-program, it's almost like launching a missile, right? Or uh, old fashioned one <laughs> where you can't direct it after it's ballistic, right? Once it's started, I can't change it anymore. Um, that's kind of the old, uh, online control means I'm going to adjust it while it's going on. Right. So if I realize I'm my, my weight is I've uh, gotten way out in front um, of a pitch because mm-hmm. I it, it, I can speed up the the weight shift I can start my bat moving earlier I can I can change things during the actual movement itself based on the information I'm getting um, so online means you know while it's happening so it's it's not just pre-programmed ballistic thing it's actually being adjusted in, in the moment so essentially in an online with online control, the, the athlete is coupling their movement to the information as it's developing. So as the, the pitch is coming towards them, maybe they perceive it as a fastball, but now that it's getting closer there, they now perceive that the ball is slowing down or it's maybe moving away from them and they're adjusting their movements, um, to compensate for that change in um, ball flight information. Exactly. Yeah. So probably they're using the movements of the pitcher and, 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 and bought, you know, kinematics of the pitcher initially just to kind of roughly time the, the weight, you know, the shift and the leg kick. And then as the ball is released, you get, you know, really information that tells you exactly where it's going and when it will get there, but you don't have much time to use that. So you kind of have to, to start, start the movements earlier, but, um, yeah, that's exactly the cup coupling is the, the perfect word you're the so these these adjustments online are based on something the batter's picking up um mm-hmm. the ball flight or the pitcher's movement or, or something like that and then when you were looking with the um or or if you were to speculate i suppose um based upon your research what ways would they make those online adjustments um would they would they keep their weight back would they let their weight drift more forward? Would they keep their um, uh, lead leg in the air longer? What ways were athletes um, adjusting to that information? Yeah, that that's a really good question. That That is something, you know, the the ground reaction force data didn't doesn't really capture. Um, but we definitely saw, we saw all these kind of different ways to do it. Um, there was a lot of individual difference in, in the ways batters actually did that. You're right. Some, you know, de- delayed the, um, you know, their, their actual contact point with the ground. I'm um, going to keeping their big leg kick foot in the air longer. Some landed softer and just 
the weight shifters. So, um, so I didn't actually kind of measure those things um, in, in any systematic way, but we definitely observed them. So that, that's kind of the, the next thing I want to do at, at, at some point, look at how these actual timing were manipulated. Cause we definitely saw there was, there was individual differences um, kind of based on the bat, the batter. The only, one of the uh, only things we did, I did related to that is I wanted to look at kind of how the individual constraints of the batter affected all these things. So what we did was um, at the start of the study, we measured kind of the maximum bat speed that a batter could generate. So we had them swing as hard as they could and we measured it. And we found that that, kind of affects how they, they adjust their timing. Um, um, batters that had higher bat speed could actually uh, vary their swing more and had bigger kind of change in the, in the good variability. So they could, they could do more of this online adjustment. Um, and you, you can think about, you, you can imagine that, right? If I, if I can swing, generate a faster swing, it allows me to wait back a little longer or, or do wider range of timings. Um, um, then if I, you know, I can't swing as hard, I got to get the bat going uh, earlier and things like that. So, but yeah, that, that is something uh, that's a really uh, good point and, and something I'll look at more. And so then that, that brings the question of the idea of max bat speed, but um, going to your research, um, what about max uh, ground force or maximum amount of force that a batter can generate? Um, between either either front or back leg, uh, did you look deeply into that? Um, no, no, that those are great, and I think those are great examples of other individual uh, constraints. Uh, the only thing I did related to that, I was ta talking to someone about this the other day, is I ha I haven't published it yet, but um, we did uh, a training study where we actually made um, batters uh, do leg lifts, so like you would do in the gym with one leg. So they did cur basically cur curls. So what we we're trying to do is fatigue one of their legs so they couldn't generate as much force. And we did find that that kind of adjusts their time that alters their timing. So if you really tire their back leg, it changes how they, they shift. So I think that kind of supports what, what you're saying, uh, that idea, but we didn't measure it for individual batters. But I think there's lots of, you, you know, the force, you right, bat speed, the rotation, um, the amount of rotation they could generate, um, all those kind of factors I would expect to influence these kind of things. So I know you did a podcast on intrinsic constraints. Would mm -hmm. that would that be what you're talking about there a little bit in terms of um, how much force they can generate, the um, action capabilities of um, their body in terms of uh, bat speed and whatnot? Yeah. So, um, I would call those individual constraints. So kind of mm -hmm. general, uh, so individual constraints to me are general abilities that you have that are kind of going to apply to all tasks. So, uh, the, the, you know, my flexibility, my, you know, force I can generate are, are going to apply to a lot of different tasks. And, um, these individual constraints then produce what we call intrinsic dynamics, which is kind of your, your coordination tendencies that you bring to the table before you you actually train at all. You, people seem to have these different patterns of coordination. Didn't get into that too much in, in this paper other than, than, as you said, that one bat speed manipulation. And I guess speaking of which, since we're talking a little bit about um, intrinsic dynamics, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of your um, more recent uh, podcasts, you talked about uh, in phase and anaphase. 
mm-hmm. and like in different phase states. How, I guess, how does, would that, do you think that would play into timing and the weight shift and how people um, create variability? Would, do you think that would have some sort of influence on that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I don't, um, I haven't done kind of enough of, of, um, movement analysis to, to kind of see that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it does in some way, because we know that those seem to be, um, coordination tendencies that apply to a lot of different things we do, you know, from walking to, you know, the example I use drumming, um, to a lot of different activities. So I think, yeah, if you had the right kind of variables you were looking at within the swing, I, you might see some, some patterns like that. Um, the, uh, but yeah, I think, uh, so I think there, there definitely could be, um, I didn't really do any, haven't seen any in, in the kind of analyses I've done. So. Um, and just for the listeners to, to understand kind of what we're talking about, um, in phase and in a phase essentially is like, if you're from, um, dynamics of skill acquisition, I believe is where I first saw this. It's basically like finger wagging, you know, and can you, can you move them together in the same direction? And then as you speed it up, eventually they go, they start pointing at each other. Um, so like in phase versus, um, antiphase, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if you imagine drumming on the table, um, Mm -hmm. in phase is your two fingers hitting the table at the exact same time. Uh, antiphase is one hitting the table and one as the maximum height. So, um, what you're right, you find a couple of different things. One, you find if you ask people to do any other combination, so like 90 degrees out of phase where one is halfway to the table, they find it really hard. We've, we have a kind of a natural tendency to go towards perfectly in phase and, and any phase. And, and if you're right, if you, sometimes if you, there's variables like the frequency or speed at which you do it, that cause one attractor to, to, uh, to like you can only do in phase. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that, that's a basic idea. Um, so yeah, as I said, I'm sh- I haven't really thought about that. I started to think a little bit after I did that episode, it's, I started thinking about phase relationships in the swing. Um, but I haven't quite, uh, put it together yet. Yeah. But it makes me wonder about like other coordination patterns, because like where they took it in the in the book was to they they made a really good example of like there's no in between walking and running. You can't like slow run mm-hmm. um, and to in part because I have a little bit of a um, S&C background. I tried to figure out if there was a way to do a little bit more slow motion running to try to get those positions and bounding is kind of the closest that I think you can get. But that being said, it makes me wonder about other movement skills such as hitting. And as the speed picks up and there's more pressure, does, does it kind of, um, shift us to an in-between state, maybe it shifts us from in-phase to anti-phase, um, or or maybe we get caught in the middle in between those two patterns, and that's what causes um, the coordination to um, essentially produce that bad variability or just become uncoordinated. Um, do you think that might be like a plausible um, hypothesis, or how would you, what way... What way could this be practically applied to how we would view um, sport movement behavior? Yeah, I think I think you could. Um, you know, the way that we think about that in kind of dynamics of systems is, you know, you have these these control variables, 
Uh, control variables cause, if you change them, they cause a change in the, the movement solution the, the, or the attractors, if you want to think. So the example you described from walking to running is a perfect example. You, you, if you make people go faster and faster, you get this sudden shift in the coordination solution. You can't run and walk at the same time. It totally changes your whole um, your whole structure. So I, yeah, I think speed would be an interesting one. Um, you know, it's possible that at slower speeds, it allows for different coordination um, timings that will, will suddenly, as you push to a higher speed, they're not going to work anymore. So you get a kind of a shift. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that that would be an interesting um, way to look at. Um, I haven't really systematically looked at how it changes with time, with speed or, or, or any kind of control variable like that. But I think that would be an interesting thing to do, definitely. Because I know like with hitting, you can definitely go slower. But for example, for with baseball, throwing to me um, shares those shares similar characteristics to running. You know, you it's very hard to throw a ball um, with the same mechanics or similar mechanics at lower intensities. Um, and there's a certain in speed or intensity or tempo at which you get the um, the sequence to work in a way that, for example, with um, external rotation, mm -hmm. um, there's probably there's a, like a certain intensity where you're going to get normal layback. But if you are going too slow, you're just not going to get that same kinetic kinetic sequence or kinematic um, sequence is going to be uh, very different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I know exactly what you mean. I think um, it's definitely you know the you have to kind of try and and you're right. Some actions trying to slow them down and do them in slow motion. It just doesn't work. It's the, the, the pressure, kind of the speed constraint actually, um, organizes so that, you know, right. The idea is that, you know, you cord the degrees going back to the degrees of freedom problem. You're organizing mm -hmm. these degrees of freedom and coordinating them based on the constraints. They emerge right from the constraints. So if you're changing the constraint of mm -hmm. speed and timing, you, they're going to get different coordination patterns. And, um, that's kind of, you know, it, it's important both for understanding it and then also the issue of transfer, right? If you're a guy, mm -hmm. if you're going to train where you're, you're in a different conditions with different constraints, you, you know, are, is it going to produce a coordination pattern that can be uh, recalibrated to work in, in the higher conditions, right? So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of, of, of merit to looking at that. Um, I, I think it's the similar things could apply to, to batting. I, I don't know exactly what um, kind of the variables would be, but I would expect, yeah, you could, you would get similar things. Um, to kind of transition back to the, to the study a little bit, what, what practical applications, uh, could coaches take away from this study? Um, so yeah, so kind of going back, looping back, um, we measured, uh, so, but what I did in the study was kind of measure, the effect, uh, the training to look at, you know, the, how, how much good variability and bad variability before and after training, um, how much kind of functional variability, like, so if you, you, you started your, your, your stepping too early, how much did you adjust? Um, and basically I found that all of these kind of things were better for the, the adaptive group that had more variability in practice conditions. So I think, the one message, the main message I had is, you know, uh, if you want athletes to have this functional movement variability, this good variability, 
the best way to get it is have variability in practice conditions, right? And, and you know, we give them more uh, ranges of speeds, ranges of locations, pitch types, um, so they can learn to make these adjustments and learn this functional adaptation. Um, so that that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is, you know, kind of, I think these individual constraints that we, we've talked about, I think they're important for a coach to understand because they, they limit the coordination solutions, right? So maybe you're, you know, you have this batter, you're trying to coach and they're not getting it what you want them to do. And you're just kind of getting frustrated and you might be not a kind of a, we tend to think of it as a mental thing or a, you know, cognitive thing. Maybe it's just, they don't have the capacity to do what you want and, so you need to know that obviously, and also that's, I think a way we can connect kind of skill training with S and C, right? So um, if we identify, you know, what Robert was talking about force, you can generate a rotation. If we can generate a, we find that's limiting the solution Then we can, let's target that in, in train in strength training and see if we can get that uh, capacity up. So maybe they'll, they'll, you know, they'll, these the solutions will afford themselves more in, in training. So then does that broach the question in a training environment for coaches? Should coaches go for more of a freeing to kind of freezing uh, degrees of freedom approach or should it be the other way around? That's a, a good question. So, yeah, related to that. Um, so these batter, like I said, they were high school players. So they're all, you know, been playing for quite a few years and. So we we saw some evidence, not much evidence of, of freezing. Freezing seems to be a very, very early strategy um, you use to just get proficient at the task, right? Um, and then you freeze. So um, I think, you know, I think so with any kind of skill level, I think you wouldn't see too much freezing. Um, I think so what I what I said in the, in the talk, you know, I think. Freezing is a is a useful solution. It gets the job done and, and it lets you get some proficiency and confidence. But it's definitely not going to be, you know, very functional in the long term if you want to, you know, compete at a high level because it's not going to be adaptable at all. Um, you know, I think there's a chance for injury with because it's very repetitive motion and, and keeping, you know, joints not moving, bending your elbow or, at all or something like that, or keeping it coupled to another joint is, can be potentially repetitive motion. So, um, so I think, you know, it, to get some, depending on the level you're working with, I think freezing, um, could be a useful solution. It's see, and then to allow them just to get started and then kind of push them away from it. Definitely. Do you kind of want to, um, explain to coaches why variability is good um, or at least especially when it comes to practice. Cause I think a lot of coaches worry that if, if you have too much variability, they won't actually get better at the task. Um, you know, for example, let's say a, a batter struggles with um, pitches on the outer half or is always chasing um, pitches that are, um, you know, away from them and out of the zone. Most, the, the general approach is to just focus solely on that. What would be the benefit of, of having more of a range of um, pitches that are thrown to the, to the hitter or just vary, varying whatever it is that you're trying to work on with an athlete? Yeah, I think, I think there's a, there's a, a few different things that, you know, kind of we believe in, um, you know, the, 
I think there is room for the, kind of what you described on focusing, especially when you fo- want to work on one particular thing. Um, the, the, I think there's advantage of that, but the basic idea is, you know, you're going to have very variable conditions in competition for sure. Right. No pitchers aren't going to give you a fastball down the middle on it, like a pitching machine. So you need to be able to adapt to different uh, conditions in the environment. Um, also, you know, more variability in, in, in conditions seems to, you know, it allows people to explore more and, and it forces them to kind of find what works for them. Right. If you give them the same thing all the time, people were kind of really lazy learners in a way. We'll just latch on to whatever works. Right. And uh, it might not be the most efficient and kind of optimal solution for us. So kind of giving variability in conditions not only is more representative of what you're going to face, um, but it also, I think, allows people to explore more and it encourages people to, you know, have to adjust to different speeds and locations. But going back to the very first thing you said, you know, there is a limit, right? You do need to, mm-hmm. and that's kind of that in my study, that's um, the first study I was talking about. That's the adaptive part of that. We did control the amount of variability based on, so if you're struggling, throwing a ton of variability at a, at a batter is not going to be very effective, right? It's just, it's going to make like that. A lot of variability makes it harder, the task harder. So you do need to kind of scale it to, appropriately to how the level and how well the athlete is performing. Um, but so the, in the practice conditions, I, I, I think that that's important to think about And if you, if you want to work us on one particular thing, I think, I think that's um, a different uh, thing you can do as well. So by scaling, you mean scaling the, the task um, to the, uh, to the athlete as well as the information within the task. And so, even with that, as you're saying that to me, I'm thinking we're just varying the bandwidth of variability, but we still want to have a bandwidth there. We just may want to figure out which um, constraint we want to manipulate to uh, kind of narrow that bandwidth for them to search and explore. Yeah, that that's a very good way to put it. I think, yeah. Um, the, the, the issue is, so, you know, if I'm going to take a, a, a pitch the ball to you and it's exactly the same speed every time, um, the problem with that is obviously that's not representative of a real game. And it also allows you to use uh, information, you know, uh, you know, information movement solutions that aren't going to work, right? So I can time my swing against a pitching machine that's throwing the same speed, by just starting the swing when the ball gets a certain distance from the shoot, right? Because mm-hmm. the distance is perfectly correlated with speed and it's right. So I can come up with this movement solution. That's not going to transfer very well. So add, adding, you're right. Some bandwidth um, that's going to depend on the hitter. We don't, you know, how much the pitches vary from, from pitch to pitch is kind of the bandwidth of the, the variability. Adding some of it is going to break that solution. It's not going to work anymore. Right. Because the, the, if I vary the speed, you can't start the swing at the same distance. So it's going to make it um, more, you're going to latch onto the kind of the more information that's useful for the task. But as I, as I said, you do want to, the amount, the pitches vary from pitch to pitch in speed. You do want to adjust for the hitter based on the kind of challenge them at the right level. And two, like when it comes to, for me, why I think it's super important to, do variable practice is it actually allows the learner to understand the differences and maybe be able to pick up uh, 
the information better. And, and just like, I've heard this too, from where I first, uh, even before I learned about ecological dynamics, um, there's this book by Peter Brown called make it stick. Mm -hmm. And in it, he talks about how, let's say you're studying something like art history and you're trying to figure, uh, learn, uh, certain types of paintings, um, from a certain era, it's actually better to interleave or study two um, time periods at the same time because it allows you to pick up the differences between um, those time periods. And so to me, when we do variability, it allows us to actually uh, become more sensitive to the changes that um, actually occur. And we can actually learn better the a more narrow task because we have a broader range of experiences uh, that we can uh, call on to help us um, when we're picking up information and understanding what that information means. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's an excellent point. I think I think a great way to put it, and um, I think it all that what you're just saying it also really relates to to Gibson's idea of invariance, mm -hmm. right? So. Um, with, with, from pitch to pitch, there's going to be a whole bunch of things that change, right? Um, you know, the, the distance it's be, you know, all these things that spin, um, the, the, those are the variants. Um, but if you give people enough of a sample and a, in a change in conditions, they can pick up the things that are the same, you know? So the, the, mm -hmm. the expansion rate of the ball is always going to be related to how fast it soon it gets there. Um, so that's, a, that's an invariant in Gibson's terms. So you're right being able, and I think, so you, you both know, notice the differences and you pick up what are the kind of the, the things that aren't changing, you know, so in your example of art styles, you know, what are the key features of this period, um, by seeing the things that are different, <laughs> right. It helps you under, understand what the things that are the same as well. Yeah. And I also think like in terms of driving, like the more different conditions or different ways. And I think we'll talk about, um, on the podcast that we'll release this week about Robert gave the example of him taking a new way to work, mm -hmm. um, allowed him to, when he was, uh, stocking shelves, allowed him to actually be more productive. Like there's a level of when you introduce variability and, um, varied experience, it actually helps it helps you navigate or solve problems more effectively. And, and the, with the same being true of like um, driving as well, like as you gain more experience of different conditions, your ability to handle um, even the, the most normal conditions or frequent conditions uh, becomes even more enhanced. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, we, we see that. So for those that don't know, I do driving research as well. Um, they, you know, we do, um, if you do a risk perception or hazard perception mm -hmm. test, so you let people drive and you, you know, they drive along and they point out, okay, that situation's potentially dangerous. Um, you, what you find is experienced drivers are way better than that at new drivers, right? So you're mm -hmm. right. As we get this more and more experience, we learn, okay, that person, there's a big exit coming up to the highway. I know that people are going to veer back in because <laughs> they didn't mm -hmm. know this, they're in the off ramp. Um, so I, you kind of learn to anticipate those things. Um, mm -hmm. uh, definitely. Um, I also, I, I use an, a driving example for this a lot. Um, so when I, I, you know, I learned to drive in Canada, which is just like the U S on the right side of the road. And then when I, I lived in England for a while, 
and, and you know, learning to drive on the left is, is challenging. Um, but there's actually a really simple rule to use, right? Because the, the steering wheel is on the different side of the car um, in England. Mm -hmm. So if you keep yourself closest to the middle of the road, right? It, that's a rule that works in both countries, right? Mm. So, but no one ever learned that rule because they didn't get enough variability in conditions, right? Um, mm. Why would you learn that rule if you're always in America? You just learn to drive on the right, right? Um, so expand, forcing you to drive, if you flew back and forth <laughs> while you were learning to drive, you'd probably mm. pick up this high, so it's, we call it a higher order rule, like, so it's a rule that's more generalizable and is going to work better in more conditions. Um, then if you, if you narrow the variability of conditions, people latch onto these, these simple rules that aren't as adaptable and generalizable. Yes. So, so definitely. So I guess to, um, loop back, but still a little bit on this topic, if coaches want to enhance variability in their hitting sessions, um, like your study and they, um, how do they recreate the adaptive group? that you um, had in your study uh, if they don't have VR? Oh, sorry. Um, sorry about that. Um, yeah. So I think you can use, you know, some of these um, new, newer pitching machines. You can uh, program to have ver settings in, in variability. And, um, and I think, you know, and, you know, if you, ha you have someone pitching, but that, that that's probably the easiest way to do it. You can program different speeds and different spins. And, and so, I think the, the initial part is just tracking it, how much you're varying and, and kind of seeing how the athlete is responding and then trying to get, so you can kind of have different settings, uh, you know, for different hitters and, and kind of adjust it from session to session, I think would be the easiest way. So, you know, program in a, a relatively small range of speeds or something to start and let's see how well mm -hmm. they handle it. And then maybe just so a lot of, a lot of variability that the key is just kind of tracking it because we don't, sometimes mm -hmm. we don't even track how much we're adding or how much, um, and there's some good resources for that. I know, um, Damien Farrell and Tim Buzzard have developed these different tools for, you know, how much you vary kind of between and within skills and sports and calculating that. So I think that's kind of the first step is just tracking it and taking note of it. Um, and then you can try to adjust it for the individual. Do you want to kind of at least uh, point people to those like um, kind of what were they papers or books? Yeah. That, uh, um, and just that at least the topic that they can go search. So I can it's um, so it's Tim, Tim Buzzard and, and Damien Farrow from um, Australia, AIS in Australia. Um, I think um, if uh, I could their paper. I know I covered it in a podcast. I think it's called, um, there's a paper called quantifying contextual interference, mm. uh, and it's effect on skill transfer. Um, so, um, they, uh, they, um, look at that and they should, they show different ways to, uh, kind of quantify the amount of variability. So all you have to do is really write down, okay, this, this session was a fastball. This one was inside, uh, in a, in a thing in a, in a table. And then, they show you kind of how to, you can calculate it and quantify it. So it, it is kind of useful. Mm. Yeah. Cause, cause what I was thinking as you were talking about it was just measuring the velocity thrown and what was the standard deviation that a batter faced and then maybe how successful they were. And then you could alter the variability of the pitch speed 
um, and the range uh, based upon how they were doing. And that would be a way to scale it based upon the athlete's abilities. And then if we're doing that, though, do we want to try to get them to work near the edge of their ability? And then so are we looking for a certain Will we have to kind of come up with a um, success rate that we would want to use to kind of gauge um, the uh, how how challenging and appropriate the task difficulty was? Yeah. So this. So generally, off the the baseball is kind of an exception, but in general, the rule that will kind of tell people, and then the research has shown, is around you want people to be around seventy to eighty percent successful. Right. Hmm. Um, that seems to be the the area that keep, keeps people motivated and, and challenges. So they're may, not making too many mistakes um, and it's kind of pushing them just enough. If it, if it if their success rate is too low, they um, they they get kind of demotivated and they lose focus and things like that. So that's kind of the standard thing with baseball. You have to right, kind of scale that because baseball, obviously, mm-hmm. you start with really good being 30. <laughs> right. If you're just talking mm-hmm. hits, but uh, off a pitching machine, you could probably use kind of a similar, you know, if you're just talking about putting a ball in play or I guess. So I, but yeah, that seems to be the range kind of uh, to target um, to challenge people at the right level. And that's, I mean, that's, you're saying, that's exactly what we did in, in, the in the study, the, 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 okay. the, the adaptive process got, I think it, was, it ends up. So you get around 75% success rate. Mm. Yeah. As you were saying that though, it made me think maybe baseball coaches sh- should recruit, um, skateboarders, um, because they, they tend to like to fail and <laughs> keep at it until they succeed. Yes. Um, <laughs> there is, there's definitely uh, some variation in that too, as well. Yeah. And if that's an individual uh, constraint as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert, do you have any other sort of, uh, questions before we uh, wrap up here? Yeah, I guess the, the one quick thing was the, as you talked about, you know, the variability of pitches, uh, we talked about, you know, on a previous podcast and on Rob's uh, live podcast about his recent study of, you know, varying the uh, different groups and, you know, essentially saying we don't, we're not going to tell you what pitch come next. Um, you know, it's the same pitches. So that, that could be another great way to adjust that variability as well. Yeah, definitely. The varying the pitch type and, um, you know, uh, kind of forcing them to, to kind of pick it up from the ball flight. So yeah, yeah, I think, um, yeah, that's definitely another way you can, you can push them and add more variability. Yeah. Mixing in, um, different spin rates and different, different things like that, uh, as well. Well, um, I think we, we covered a lot of really good stuff today. Um, are there any follow-up, I guess, um, or are there any things that people should follow up on looking into um, that you would recommend uh, currently? Um, so I think, you know, just, you know, not to self-promote, but the, some of the podcast episodes, I'm trying to get into a bit more. So like, I think my most recent episode, I, l- I looked at how you can add variability by modifying equipment. 
So using mm-hmm. different uh, balls and fat, the you know f- different flexibility, bat, bat weight. So, um, so w- within the podcasting, some, some of the in kind of my blog post, I talk about different ways you can if you if you if you believe this kind of variability of practice is a good way to go. Um, different ways you can you can do it. Um, I think, and and of course, my podcast, I'm talking about other other people's work as well, which has shown how you mm-hmm. can do this. So, so that that's where I, I kind of would you know, start if, if you want to try to kind of explore this, um, adding this more to your own practice. Awesome. So make sure to check out, um, Rob Gray's podcast, which is perception and action or perception action podcast. <laughs> That's uh, interesting. I think it's technically the perception and action podcast, but those for a new, those who are in the know, know that's kind of a no, no to say, that. <laughs> but, right. but, uh, so we could either way you could, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on and um, talking motor learning and baseball with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Analyzing.